market rate, £3,000 a day. Were you signing Lionel Messi? This is First Minister's questions. Just once, just once, it would be nice to get a First Minister's answer. Any political party in this chamber that was confident in their arguments around independence would not be desperate to deny the people of Scotland the right to make that choice. The Steamy, a laudable production for the Scotsman. Hello and welcome to The Steamy, the Scotsman's political podcast. My name's Connor Matchett, I'm the Deputy Political Editor at The Paper and with me this week, as always, is the Political Editor, Alistair Grant. Alistair, how are you this fine Thursday afternoon? I'm good, yeah. I'm brilliant. How are you? Fantastic. I'm getting through it. Glad that Friday's just away. Although I can't really complain. I did have a four-day weekend last weekend, which you had to, you know, cover for. So, you know, hey-hey. Anyway, um, we'll talk about FMQs and uh, quite an interesting intervention from former Cabinet Minister Fergus Ewing on the deposit return scheme policy shortly. We'll also hear from Alex Brown, the Scotsman's Westminster correspondent as well. But we'll start with a wee chat ahead of an interview with the man of the hour, which is Stuart MacDonald MP, formerly a senior member of Ian Blackford's team in Westminster, since relegated to the backbenches by Stephen Flynn. But he's still a well thought of um, member of the SNP in Westminster and is quite influential and has a decent reputation. Alistair, he released a paper, didn't he, this week, Stuart, on de facto, and it's a the first real intervention kind of calling out Nicola Sturgeon's supposed top choice plan as being unworkable and not really fit for purpose. Yeah, so he's not keen on the idea of using an election as a de facto referendum. He's not alone. There are other people in the SNP who feel the same way. He's released this paper. It is quite a big intervention. He's a well-known uh, MP, as you say, former frontbench figure and well thought of, and kind of in the moderate, kind of yeah. gradualist wing of the, the SNP. Firmly a gradualist. So I think he says a few things, uh, and I think he has this kind of a couple of interesting arguments. So I think he's right to say that a de facto referendum is a deficient mechanism. Uh, and I think he's right to say that it would be unlikely to lead to Scotland becoming independent, and that there are no grounds to believe uh, that independence negotiations would follow a de facto referendum. There's no reason to believe it would bring the UK government to the negotiating table. Uh, I think he's also quite right to say that um, it would expose or potentially expose the SNP's leadership to further kind of setbacks and division. If you hold this de facto referendum, the UK government doesn't come to the negotiating table, there could potentially be quite a, a kind of existential fallout from that for the party. And I think, again, another point he makes, which I think is a good one, is the wider geopolitical picture in Europe. So you've obviously got the war in Ukraine, uh, you've got wider concerns about the economy, knock-on impacts of, uh, of that conflict. And would a de facto referendum gain favour with the international community? No, it's incredibly unlikely to gain favour with them, especially if the UK government isn't playing ball. Uh, so I think all of those are totally... Yeah, I think they're, they're strong criticisms, to be honest. I think there's, there'll be lots of people in the SNP who read that paper, and I think everyone should read it in the SNP before they hold this special democracy conference uh, next month to talk about the way forward. But I think one of the things is that I think Stuart Macdonald's own answers as to what should happen next, I think his own preferred strategy might not feel satisfying for those people who are kind of champing at the bit and are you know, impatient for something to be done. So I think he says that a commitment to securing a legitimate referendum should be front and centre of the next general election campaign. And he argues that reinforcing the mandate in that way would steal the mandate, reinforce it to such an extent that it would be extremely difficult for the Prime Minister to ignore it. It kind of bring that mandate to an unprecedented level. And this would be supplemented by a separate kind of national cross-Scotland independence campaign that would work to drive support above that 50% mark. I think the first thing to say about that is, I guess the problem with relying on a election to increase your mandate is that every election really, or every recent election we've had has really been about, uh, well, certainly the SNP have come out of it saying it's given them a mandate for an independence referendum. So it's hard to know why that would be more likely, why this election would be the one that made it more likely for the UK government to be unable to refuse yeah. that. Particularly, I think if you've got an incoming Labour government who'll have their own agenda, they'll have their own things they want to achieve, Keir Starmer will not want to be known 
as the Prime Minister that presides over the breakup of the UK. I think the second part is probably more potent when it comes to building pressure, this idea that you'd have this cross-country independence campaign that's working to get support over 50%. Because I think there are a lot of people who think that is the only way to break the deadlock, to get support for independence in the polls, uh, to have it a clear and sustained majority for independence that's you know, markedly above 50% for a period of time. I think that would make it hard for the UK government to continue saying no. I think you've even got people like the Scottish Secretary Alistair Jack who has basically said things along those lines. So I think this is a really good intervention. It's really good for the debate. Uh, but I think maybe if you're of the wing of the, the SNP and the wider pro-independence movement who is frustrated by the lack of action, you probably won't buy what Stuart MacDonald is, what his preferred route forward is. I don't know what you think. I think the most notable thing about it, and I asked Stuart about this in the interview, is that um, Alec Neil, the former um, cabinet secretary up here in Scotland under Alex Salmond, who is traditionally would be considered a fundamentalist, someone who, you know, wants independence yesterday and potentially that's where the heat is being felt by Nicola Sturgeon. But the fact that Alec Neil writes the foreword to this to this paper, I think, demonstrates that there's a need for this debate at this democracy conference in, in Edinburgh in, in March to actually be a genuine debate. I think the amendments to the motions are yet to be finalised. I think at the minute there's concerns within the activist community that it could just be a rubber stamping of the plans already kind of put forward by, by the First Minister. But he, he's Stuart MacDonald's paper puts across what I think is quite a compelling argument for why de facto won't work. And I think the fundamental fact of the matter, which Stuart touches on in our interview, is that the independence movement doesn't have a majority support in the country. So the now is not the time response from the UK government continues to be sustainable. And as long as they don't have that majority support, that response remains sustainable, which is the central issue really facing the whole thing. Well, let's hear from Stuart MacDonald, MP, who spoke to me early this week on his paper. So hello and welcome to the steamy Stuart MacDonald, MP. I think the first thing, Stuart, that we need to do is settle on a description for you and whether or not you're a senior, junior, grizzled, as another journalist is put forward, or veteran. Which one do you prefer? Uh, I prefer the term humble backbencher. <laughs> So humble backbencher Stuart McDonald is with us today to um, chat us through and, and have, a, have a chat about um, a paper that you published earlier this week um, on the de facto referendum policy choice, basically, for the SNP. It's a really interesting piece of work, and I think a few folk have, who watch Scottish politics probably called this like the, the most, the, the first time that maybe the grassroots who agree with your view that a de facto referendum isn't the way forward, have had someone or something to look at and rally around. Do you, do, you, do you agree with that? Is this the first time that you've seen someone within the SNP like actually write, put it down on paper rather than just talk about it? Well, I mean, I don't see myself as some kind of gradualist Moses, <laughs> you know, leading leading my people to the promised land. Certainly not. Um, I mean, look, the, the First Minister has kicked the issue out to the party for a debate. Uh, and if there's one thing we members of the SNP like, uh, it's, a, it's a debate. And we rather unfortunately love a debate about process, which is, <laughs> which is what we now need to have. But it's totally understandable. I support the, the, the decision to give this out to the party to, to think this through. And my paper uh, seeks to be a contribution to that and, and, Essentially, the motion that we are debating and that branches are currently, you know, working out amendments to and and whatever else, is almost kind of two versions of a de facto referendum. And and what my paper seeks to do is outline why de facto as a mechanism is is not the best way forward, irrespective of which election you try to use it, uh, and instead suggests a way forward that I think is a bit more tried and tested. Uh, it, starts on a, a kind of keen and honest understanding of where public opinion is at uh, and hopefully, without being overly prescriptive in the paper, suggests a way forward to ensure that we can build support beyond uh, the kind of around about 50% that it has enjoyed for some time. Yeah, you, write, you write in the in the paper that 
A de facto referendum is a deficient mechanism for the party to opt for and creates the potential for all sorts of problems for the cause. Also states, um, which I think is probably the key thing, is that you know there's no guarantee that a de facto referendum will secure Scotland's independence. Can you take us through maybe a couple of the reasons why that's your view? So one of the things I don't address in the paper, but Alec Neil mentions in his foreword uh, to the paper, is just how difficult it will be to breach that barrier of success, whatever that looks like, in a general election contest or even in a Hollywood election contest. You start with a, a kind of the rules of the game not really working for you. You also start from a position whereby the public don't support a de facto referendum. I think if you go to the back of the paper, public polling on using de facto is around about 30-something percent. So you immediately start on the back foot in terms of explaining the legitimacy of the process to your own voters and to voters who you need to change their mind on independence. So you, you automatically start on the back foot. And I think in actual fact, we're in a really strong position, despite the miasma of impatience that you know exists and, and I completely share and understand. We know that the public have voted for politicians since 2014 who support Scottish self-determination and another referendum. And polling shows that two-thirds majority support for a second referendum. Now, that isn't all independent supporters. Now, there, there are differing views on when that referendum should be. And I think there's some more polling out today, which I haven't had a chance yet to look at properly on timing. But we start from a really, really powerful position where we know the public believes that this issue, this, this boil needs lanced at some point. And my worry is that a de facto referendum allows for public favour to tilt away from us and away from our advantage. So I think you handle that public confidence with care. And rather than, in my view, seeking to resolve our own impatience by doing de facto, you instead create a campaign, a proper national body that drives up support for independence well north, comfortably north of the 50% that it currently enjoys. And I think that's part of the reason, Connor, why uh, the UK government is able to maintain the position that it is, that now is not the time, because the reality is we do still have work to do on convincing more of the electorate to back the cause of independence. And I believe there's a majority there in the country waiting to be one. That's where I think we'd be much better at underpinning our strategy and focusing our energy to materially move us forward. You mentioned Alec Neil right the foreword. You and Alec are not, I don't think probably be fair to say, you're not natural uh, allies within the SNP. Why did you ask him to write the foreword? So, look, I've got tremendous respect for Alec. I mean, he's been a minister and cabinet minister across loads of different portfolios in government, a member of the Scottish Parliament for over 20 years. He's someone who commands respect across the party, the movement, the country. He's well known for speaking his mind and, and saying what he thinks. But you're right, he comes from, if you like, a different part of the party for me. Alec is kind of the original fundamentalist uh, in many ways. I have always been a gradualist. And and Alec and I agree on this. We don't agree on other issues. We don't agree on Brexit, for example. He he doesn't support EU membership. I, I strongly support EU membership. But he sees the same problems with de facto that I see. And he also thinks the way forward is more in line with what I suggest. And I think partly in, in putting this contribution out there, you know, I, I, I expect and I've, I've seen bits of it already, some people might want to just dismiss it because it's come from me and I'm a gradualist and, you know, you're an MP and all the rest of it. It's a bit more difficult to dismiss Alec of being a comfy, slow coach gradualist uh, when he's no such thing. <laughs> so I am struck by the conversations I've had across the party that there is no consensus around de facto. Um, I'm not necessarily saying a majority of party opinion is behind me either. We, we need to thrash this out and come to a view. And then whatever view the conference does agree upon, we all need to swing behind and move forward. Going back to, you know, we're, I remember very clearly when a Nicola Sturgeon in the Scottish Parliament announced the intention to go to the Supreme Court over, over a second independence referendum. And the de facto referendum was almost a throwaway line at that point. But we know that the First Minister doesn't tend to do throwaway lines. Do you think that that was a mistake at that point to announce this as a, as a strategy? Or do you think it, it was just 
testing the waters? No, I don't think it was a mistake. I mean, to deal with the first part on the court, um, I think referring to the court was the right thing to do. I thought it was a stroke of genius. And even though the, the result was what the result was and, and, and wasn't necessarily what we would have liked, it did give us clarity. And I think clarity is always useful to have. So I think in that sense, that was definitely the right thing to do. But on the de facto part in particular, and I, I say this in the paper, I totally get why we're having this debate. I welcome the fact that de facto is in the mix, if only so that it can be dismissed, I hope, because I, I think this is birthed out of the miasma of impatience that, that exists in the party and the movement. And it's an impatience I completely share. You know, I, I remember right before the lockdown, when co the COVID pandemic started, I myself had just got delivery to my house of 15,000 survey cards. Uh, yes, campaign survey cards for my constituency. So having got all of those, and then obviously the country and the world closes down, I, it's almost like we've never quite got our mojo back since before then. And what I'm suggesting as a way forward is, rather than trying to focus on doing something about our own impatience, a de facto referendum, I think instead we need to think a bit more strategically about how we channel all that energy that, that exists. If there's one thing this party has and that the movement has, it is energy in bucket loads that outstrips anything our opponents have in terms of a ground campaign. And I think that the problem that we need to try and fix is that support for independence isn't where we need it to be. We need it to be higher. We need it to be comfortably in the majority and sustained over a period of time. I'm not overly prescriptive on numbers there, Connor. I know that Alec is a bit more prescriptive than I am, and others like Stephen Noon have been a bit more prescriptive on numbers. I don't feel the needs to be. I think the general point is one that I hope most members can get behind. The First Minister's kind of been pulled in a direction of kind of shifting away from de facto, I think it's probably fair to say. And obviously, she, you know, as we, as you've mentioned, and as we know, it is the party that will ultimately decide. Um, you, you obviously speak to a lot of people up up in Scotland, even though you're based in London. Like, what what is the view among the party leadership up here at the minute on de facto, do you think? Well, firstly, I'm not based in London. I just come down here a few days a week. I very much live in my constituency in the south side of Glasgow. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so I, I, I've been struck as I've had conversations with, with members, colleagues who are, are, are MPs, MSPs and activists. I've got my own constituency party meeting uh, next week, I think it is, to, to have a discussion about this as well. And we're all in agreement that we need to get on to a better uh, footing than we are at the minute. Uh, and members welcome the chance to have this debate. We love debates in the SNP. So I think all of that is good, and there's a real keenness amongst the membership. There's definitely and obviously a keenness amongst the leadership that we get this right. I think that getting this wrong just is not an option that anyone wants to consider. And I think the important thing is that given the, if I can phrase it like this, you know, the de facto genie is, is, a bit, is kind of out of the bottle a bit, People like me who think there is a better way needs to be able to, to spell that alternative out as well as spell out the problems with de facto, which I do in the paper, I think, in fairly blunt terms, because I think that's what it requires. We're talking about Scotland's future here. This requires um, the most you know dispassionate labours of members of the, the Scottish National Party to move us forward. We are immensely close to achieving our goal. We're not quite there yet, but the next steps we take are going to be absolutely crucial. So I think it's really important the ideas around de facto or, or on my alternative or, or whatever other ideas people might have. There might be better ideas than what I've put out there. I think it's important we test those well in debate and then come to a firm decision that ultimately allows us to materially move forward. And your your suggestion is effectively to demand a transfer of power to allow Holyrood to hold a second referendum, effectively reversing the decision of the Supreme Court through le legislation in Westminster. Is that probably a fair, a fair description? Yeah, so what the Supreme Court judgment gave us clarity over is where power lies and, and the, that power imbalance that exists between our parliament in Edinburgh and the parliament in Westminster. And it's our job as the National Party of Scotland that wishes to secure independence to navigate through that power imbalance. 
But that power imbalance doesn't mean we are powerless. Far from it. We know that the public believe there needs to be a second referendum. And I suspect most of our political opponents uh, in the Scottish Parliament uh, accept that as well. You know, you cover it in your newspaper. Every single issue we debate in Scotland is, is debated through the constitutional prism. This is not sustainable. And the public know uh, how to resolve this. Now, there are differences of opinion on timing. But the court made clear that there is a power imbalance we need to navigate through. And what I'm suggesting is that in order for us to get that necessary transfer of power for a legal, legitimate referendum that is true to our commitment to democracy and the rule of law, is that we need to secure that transfer of power. And I think part of the reason why the UK government, the the opposition in Westminster, the Labour opposition in Westminster, are able to maintain this line, now is not the time. The reason they're able to maintain that, I think, is partly charged with the fact that independent support hovers around 50%, sometimes just over, sometimes just under. So our immediate task needs to become, with a sense of considerable urgency, growing that support. I think the best way to do that is through establishing a national pro-independence campaign body. You know, I I totally get that for some members of the party and the movement at large, they might feel like, well, this is just a rehash of what we've always done. Uh, and, and, And I get why it might sound like that, but that is not what I'm proposing. There needs to be some considerable urgency injected into the campaign. At the minute, there's one body doing a lot of the lifting on independence, and it's the civil service and the production of these white papers. Now, the white papers are really important. Uh, I'm sure the defence one will be best amongst them all when it when it does eventually uh, come out. <laughs> but we need to buttress that with greater coordinated national action all across Scotland to drive that support higher. Because we want to be going into that election with the wind at our backs. Uh, we can't be going into that election with independence support hovering around the 50% mark. And I don't believe that we grow that number by by opting for the de facto option, because I just think the de facto option, one, it becomes really difficult to achieve your bar for success, and two, I think it inevitably leads you to further problems and potential setbacks after the result is declared. I suppose the follow-up to that would be, you know, say say that the party accepts your 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 ideas and and suggests that or fights the next general election on the grounds of this kind of devolution of of referenda holder powers as well as you know gaining support for independence you know the Labour Party assuming they win the next election which looks highly likely are likely just to go no surely and continue holding that pattern of you know now is not the time and they'll view handing you guys the power to hold a referendum via Holyrood as effectively allowing you to have an independence. Well, go back to the point I've just made. I think the reason that now is not the time manages to to, to carry any weight in, in the to carry some is because independent support is hovering around the 50-50. We need to grow that sustained majority so that it's comfortably in the majority. And I think there's a majority out there waiting to be won. But my party are the ones here who are on the right side of public opinion. We, we are asking that the, the norms of an election result and the mandate that comes from that result are respected. And we know from public polling that the public wants that mandate to be respected. So it's our opponents who are the unreasonable ones here, and they need to go into the next election explaining to the electorate why that is. So being in the, the position that we are, where I think we, we carry enormous... Um, public confidence on the issue of a legitimate, lawful second independence referendum, it's important that we don't do anything to tilt that favour away from us. But look, if Keir Starmer would consider a mandate for his constitutional proposals to derive from a majority of Scottish seats, then how is it any different for the SNP to have a mandate for our constitutional proposals using the exact same measurement. So we know that from the Brown proposals, which I think are woefully insufficient, especially in, in the Scottish context, we know that a future possible Labour government intends to do constitutional change anyway. We need to be going into that election with two things. A clear ask of the electorate for a mandate to have a legitimate 
second independence referendum. And we want to be going in with the wind at our backs with support for independence comfortably and sustained in the majority. So that whether it's Keir Starmer, Rishi Sunak, or who knows, maybe even Ed Davey, no prime minister can misinterpret, ignore or delay that mandate that has come from the Scottish people. So we put ourselves into a much stronger position than we've been so far. Do you not think, though, that due to the fact that any sort of deal or, you know, even suggestion of concessions to the to the SNP is viewed so negatively by the English electorate who ultimately decide general elections a lot most of the time, do you not think that that's, that's something that, you know, the, the, the UK parties are just not going to countenance, they're not going to discuss it, and they're going to dismiss any potential, you know, move forward for the SNP as something that should never happen? Look, it's up to them how they choose to campaign uh, in England <laughs> uh, in, a, in a general election. I'll campaign in Scotland uh, and try and get the mandate that, that, that we want to get. But, but go back to my point, every single issue, whether it's export policy, LGBT rights, potholes in the street, everything is being viewed through this prism and fomenting this situation where the constitution just dogs everything and the and the public don't like it and the public know the solution that's why they believe by a two-thirds majority as per the the polling that we've seen that a second referendum needs to happen and as i said earlier these people aren't all independent supporters right so i think it's my job and it's the job of all political parties to put out what it is they're seeking a mandate for and for that mandate to be honored i'm not stupid i can see that keir starmer is going to have to do is the thing he loves doing which is triangulate through all of this trying to keep english leave voters happy on the one hand whilst trying to tempt over voters in Scotland, many of whom support independence and and certainly a majority of whom support uh, getting back into the European Union. Good luck with that, Sir Keir. Uh, But I I think the strongest position we can uh, get ourselves into is understanding where public opinion is now, understanding where we need to get it to, and taking the public on that journey with us through a convincing campaign for independence. Has the party become complacent then about the level of independent support? And, you know, you speak to a lot of people within the nationalist movement and they go, look at the current support for independence. It's however many points significantly higher than it was prior to the 2014 referendum. And that all that the SNP needs to breach that is a referendum. Do you think that the party has become complacent in the belief that, you know, an actual the prospect of an actual vote will force people to, or, you know, encourage people to go over to to the independence cause? No, I don't think we've become complacent at all. We're we're certainly impatient. I'm impatient. Uh, I just want to make sure that we channel that that energy properly. Um, And I'm not of the opinion that just having a referendum will be the thing that, that, that changes people. We are not in... 2012, 13, 14 territory any longer, the next referendum will materially sound, feel, taste different to the last one. Uh, It has to if we're going to win. Uh, And where I think there is space to win people over, Connor, you know, Scotland is obviously, when it comes to the constitutional question, highly polarised. We know, and and Alec Neil mentions this in the foreword of his paper, that since 2014, around about 45%, which was our result, have supported independence through thick and thin, but 45% ain't a majority. And where I think the space exists to peel people over into our camp uh, is twofold. I think, firstly, it's around confidence in the Scottish government. And we know from the Scottish Attitude Survey, and the figures are at the back of the paper I've published, that the Scottish government commands considerable confidence of the electorate, well outstripping uh, the figures that the UK government enjoys in Scotland. Now, that's not to say we don't have testing times and we've got you know some testing uh, domestic issues right now. There are bigger global headwinds that are impacting in Scotland, same as they're impacting anywhere else, not least around cost of living and economic security and things like that. So I think performance of government and confidence of government is one area where you can get, get people to come over. And then alongside that is around the case you make for a fairer, better country. You know, I think that first Scottish government white paper that they published 
whereby the the outline the differences in economic performance, living standards, you know, the public sphere between Scotland as part of the UK and our Western European counterparts. I think that's exactly where the campaign for independence needs to tap into. We need to offer a vision that allows people to be convinced that their life and their country, their communities will be materially better, economically more prosperous, economically fairer, uh, and that, that that's the kind of uh, country we can deliver only with independence and getting back into the European Union. That it's a campaign absolutely focused on upgrading people's economic security and living standards. I think that's where the entire debate in politics is at right now. And if our campaign can tap into that with a vision that people can get behind, I think we're well over 50%. So that's why I think now, urgently, before the summer of this year, we need to have set up a national body a national campaign body to campaign for independence right across Scotland, allowing for that decentralised grassroots thousand flowers bloom approach that we saw last time round, but absolutely underpinned in our commitment to a legitimate referendum and a campaign message and a campaign narrative that meets people's aspirations and, yes, the anxieties that they have at the minute as well, and a government in Edinburgh that people can continue to trust and have confidence in. I think that's the kind of magic potion you need to mix together that will take us to independence. So Alex Salmond was the last political leader to gain a referendum. You talked about domestic problems. We won't go into the, the weeds on that one, but um, mainly because we don't have time. Um, but he was in on the BBC yesterday talking about how he believes Nicola Sturgeon and the Gender Reform Act and the wider political debate is throwing away a decade of, you know, independent support. And he believes, at least, that that should be ditched and that more focus should be be, be had on self-determination. I think his phrase was self less self-identification, more self-determination on the world at one yesterday. So the question is kind of twofold. One, do you do you agree with him that this sort of distraction doesn't help? And two, do you think that the split in the independence movement that you know Alex Salmond led with the creation of the Alba Party helps the overall movement? Or do you think interventions like yesterday, where he actively seems to want to rub salt in the wounds of the First Minister, you know, do, do, do they hurt the overall move and campaign? Yeah, I think you've hit the nail on the head at the end of your questions there. I think his ambition is to try and rub salt in wounds. And he's a fairly obscure minor figure these days. Uh, and it won't surprise you to know I don't hang on his every word. And I don't take much of what he has to say these days that seriously. There's a reason why his party languishes away down at what it does. But look, it, it's it's not a secret that domestically and also internally to the SNP and the broader independence movement, that we've had some testing times, whether that's the domestic situation around things like public sector pay, ferries, uh, the gender recognition legislation, whatever you want to pick, right? Governments always have these testing times. I think we can navigate our way through them. I wouldn't have anybody else to navigate us through that than Nicola Sturgeon and John Swinney at the top of the Scottish government. I've got total confidence in them. But on the gender recognition legislation itself, do I think it's a distraction? I support the legislation. I think the legislation is the right thing for trans people in Scotland. I've always supported it. I think the the weaponization of Section 35 of the Scotland Act from the UK government is, is utterly intolerable and something that no First Minister should accept. I rather suspect Mr Salmond wouldn't have accepted it if he were still in office. Uh, and indeed, the whole parliament uh, in Edinburgh doesn't accept it. Let's remember, this was a vote of the parliament and members of, of all parties, not just the SNP. But I think that what we need to try and do in the party over the next few weeks between kind of now and the, the, the conference itself, is we need to try and speak over these issues. We need to deal with with what is the central raison d'etre of the Scottish National Party, which is to secure Scotland's independence. And I think we're going to have to find a way to have these conversations and leave other issues to one side 
or speak about them in, in better ways. And I think the fact that Alec Neil has endorsed my plan, uh, Alec having you know stridently different views to me on, on something like Brexit, shows that we can do that within the party. I remember the big NATO debate, what will that be, 11 years ago uh, this year, we can do this in a fraternal but robust way and come to a decision. So I think that you wouldn't necessarily know it to look at the look at the headlines sometimes, but we are in a really strong position. We've got a government that does still command considerable confidence amongst the electorate. We have a leader who's still considerably popular uh, amongst the electorate. All we need to do over the next few weeks is get this decision right get our party and our cause onto the right path to materially move forward. Let's not be distracted by activity that makes us feel like we're doing something. Let's actually start to make a difference. Only by doing that, I think, will we secure Scottish independence. Stuart McDonald, thank you very much for joining us on the Steamy. Um, You've been in the papers for other reasons this week as well, which is you were hacked, you think, by Russians um, do you want to take us through just a little bit of what happened there and how it felt mainly to be targeted in that way? Yeah, well, I mean, I haven't just randomly thought this. I've gone through what's happened with officials in parliamentary security and the National Cyber Security Centre. I've spoken uh, publicly about the, the spear phishing uh, attempt that took place against me and, and also against a, a member of my staff team. It's a deeply unpleasant experience. Uh, and part of the reason why I've gone public on this, uh, and I would reinforce this to the listeners of your podcast, is to tell people to be extra, extra vigilant, uh, you know, how we handle our data. And I say this as someone who I like to think was more kind of cyber aware on these things perhaps than most people. But even as I've been talking to others about this over the past couple of weeks and others who this has happened to, some of whom are way more cyber savvy than even I am. And what has happened is a criminal offence. Uh, you know, they're they're getting increasingly aggressive, increasingly sophisticated. So my message to all of your readers is, Read, live, and breathe the advice from the National Cybersecurity Centre. I would not wish this on anyone. Well, thank you very much, uh, Stuart, for joining us this week. Thank you. So thank you very much to Stuart for joining us on the Steamy this week. Um, hopefully you at home found that interesting and illuminating and hopefully quite a thoughtful discussion of the issues. Let's hear now from our Westminster correspondent, Alex Brown, who reports on the latest from the House of Commons. Welcome back to the Westminster section of the podcast. My name is Alexander Brown. I'm the paper's Westminster correspondent. And it has been a historic week. Having all prepared to spend my day writing about PMQs and that being the main focus of Wednesday, instead, only the president of Ukraine turned up. Um, if you haven't been living under a rock, you probably know that because it has been everywhere. Just like everyone in Westminster crammed in to see his speech in Westminster Hall, uh, all taking blurry photographs uh, as he spoke at one o'clock shortly after Prime Minister's questions, making all of my pre-morning work very, very much uh, irrelevant. And it was uh, it was a pretty amazing speech. I think often covering politics and being so close to it it is easy to have a sense of cynicism if not <laughs> disdain for how some politicians conduct themselves and the rhetoric which is always so sweeping and aggressive when doesn't need to be and things not changing and often moments that seem significant you know a few of the issues around party gate uh supreme court cases or whatever actually if you step back aren't really going to have as much impact in the long term for the running of this country or, or, or indeed the world. Whereas that speech to Parliament felt really, really important. And it, and it had an immediate impact. He spoke about how Ukraine needed wings for freedom and said, you know, I thank you so much for all the lovely tea. And I look forward in advance to your planes because Ukraine has been asking for planes from Britain for quite some time. And the UK government has previously said, you know, no, we'd like the idea. It's more of a long-term thing or, you know, but it wasn't really being considered. 
And then shortly after the speech, Downing Street was kind of forced to go, well, actually, it's a long-term solution, but we will look at how we can do it. Having previously been, you know, no, not absolutely no. It didn't help that Boris Johnson said, you know, can you please do it? That would be really great. You should do it. Because uh, quite a big name, quite unhelpful for Richard Sunak, former Prime Minister. Now he doesn't have to make any decisions, can basically go, yeah, let's give more weapons and escalate the conflict. Though obviously Ukraine needs it, so it's fair enough. And the speech, it's not, it's not just what he asked for. It's not just the importance of needing help and the way that it makes it look like Britain leads the way. It's the, the way it was framed. It was such bait for the Tory MPs and just MPs in general and, and even and indeed this country. He said, thank you more times than I can remember. He said, God save the king a lot and how honoured he was to be there. He talked about tea more than once and he kept, you know, there were Churchill comparisons, not directly, but in his visit to the war rooms previously and what what it meant and what he thought now and how, you know, England had one king, well, the United Kingdom indeed has one king, but in Ukraine, all of their soldiers are kings. It was, it was just really like quite a powerful rhetoric, not in his first language, designed to kind of encourage for further support from Britain, a country who, if it increases its support, if it gives the planes that are required, can hopefully, in Ukraine's view, create a coalition uh, of international partners who could then start providing air support, which is what Ukraine desperately needs if it wants to not just you know keep pushing Russia back, but eventually, eventually win. Um, I won't bore you with you know the minutia of uh, financing a war, but uh, yeah, it was a pretty good speech, pretty historical. Ten out of ten, no notes. I have nothing derogatory to say about it, but thankfully, if you do want something silly, Lee Anderson has made deputy chairman of the Tory Party. We had a mini reshuffle with four government departments being split. Uh, well, with the government department being split into four. And uh, it's going to cost £60 million to do that. And that's kind of interesting. It's a bit silly when, you know, the Tories are almost definitely going to lose the next general election. So making such a sweeping change, they won't have any time to enact it. It's what some Tory MPs think. Uh, they think, you know, it's a nice idea. It shows intent. But really, we're not going to do anything. Whereas the government go oh aren't we aren't we long term isn't this ambitious aren't we going to achieve things but more excitingly i mean lee anderson has been made tory deputy chair i think we've got we've got to focus on that this is a man who has previously said that he thinks there should be a military boat uh in the channel to stop people crossing it uh and so they can have a standoff he has previously said that no one uses a food bank or no one needs to use a food bank uh, they all just can't budget properly and he, how he can help them if they need they're all making it up um he you know when he was ran in 2019 he faked a canvasser being a, a swing voter and actually it was one of his mates he this week threatened a bbc reporter to never give them any stories again because he didn't like how the interview had gone they'd asked him about dishonesty and he had responded by asking them if they'd ever told a lie in their life. I think he asked them about 10 times. Uh, and so they didn't play the interview in full. They shouldn't play it at all, which is mortifyingly embarrassing. And he then called for the turn of the death penalty, meaning in two days' time in the job, the government had to deny that they would bring back the death penalty. Which is just, I mean, we talk about making an impression in your first two days. Absolutely outstanding. It's going to be really good for me and every other journalist who gets to write stuff about all the silly things he's going to say. So, you know, war is bad. Zelensky was good. Having people who say things so controversially silly all the time that you get to write about things and actually have a laugh in a job that sometimes can be quite depressing. Lovely. Good. I look forward to it. That's all from me. Thank you so much for listening and have a lovely weekend if that's when you're enjoying this. And from the House of Commons to Holyrood and First Minister's questions, there was an interesting intervention from a former Cabinet colleague of Nicola Sturgeon, now very much a thorn in her side from the backbenchers. Yeah, Fergus Ewing, former Cabinet Secretary, in that role up until I think 2021, so pretty recent. And now, like you say, a complete foreign inside of the government, not just in this issue, but on a number of issues. I think he was one of the gender reform rebels just before Christmas, the nine SNP MSPs who... Uh, rebelled against the party whip when it came to that gender reform legislation. He's also, we had an update yesterday on the A9, the duelling of the A9. Obviously a long promised project in Scotland 
I think he said before that he'd eat his hat if it was done to that 2025 deadline. And thankfully for him, he won't have to because the government <laughs> basically confirmed what everyone already knew, it's not going to be done to that deadline. Um, and he was extremely angry about that. Then today in Holyrood, standing up, and he's extremely angry about the deposit return scheme, which is this kind of recycling scheme for single-use drinks containers. It's been, again, it's, it's been a bit of a saga for the Scottish government. It's not always clear why it's become the mess that it has, mm. uh, but it has become a bit of a saga. And he's, I think, raising the concerns of hundreds of drinks producers who are fearful that this will essentially decimate their businesses, that this will be something they can't cope with probably come on to this, but the Scottish Government would dispute quite a lot of these concerns and would say that they're misunderstood or maybe there's been a bit of dis disinformation out there. But Fergus Ewing essentially saying that this, I think, I think the word he used was catastrophic, potentially catastrophic legislation and urging Nicola Sturgeon to put a pause on it while this gets sorted. So I think it's interesting to have, Fergus Ewing is actually a rarity in the Scottish Parliament and he's a backbencher who stands up and whatever you think about his views, holds the government to account. He asks awkward questions in the chamber. You can tell when he stands up sometimes that the government, are, the front bench of the government are concerned about what he's going to say. And he has weight just because he was in the cabinet until so recently. So although people do know where he stands on certain issues, you know, his politics aren't a secret. I think it's, it's useful to have someone like him who'll stand up and uh, voice some of these concerns from within the SNP. He's got that institutional knowledge as well, which is always a concern given that he was in government for nigh on a decade and yeah. you know, he knows how these things work he absolutely knows how everything works <laughs> and knows the people involved as well his kind of central question was that this drs scheme um, which for those who don't know is effectively a additional charge on the top of your cost of a bottle of wine or a can of beer can of diet coke will result in additional costs for producers and you will get the money back as a consumer if you then yeah. recycle said So producers can. would pass on the cost to the consumer exactly. who would then get the money back. It's 20p in this case 20p. So by recycling it. As it was helpfully pointed out to, to me by, by someone that would put my 24 pack of Diet Coke up from about £8 to about £13. And how many 24 packs of Diet Coke do you go through? Sadly, two a month at the very least. <laughs> um, my mother would be shocked to learn that. It's one a day, I think that's fair. But the point being is that Particularly for small producers, there's concerns about additional cost, etc., etc. And Lorna Slater has been the one leading this, the Scottish Green Minister. And it seems the government would certainly argue that, look, Germany does this, other big company, countries do this. A lot of the big boys have signed up to this and are very happy with it. And, you know, there's an argument that, the, that maybe the concerns of small businesses have been over, overstated due to their lack of understanding or, or whatever. Do you, do you think it is a serious concern? I mean, the big news earlier on in the year was that it had been delayed. That's, they seem to be sticking to the August go-live date. So it feels like there's a bit of differing interpretations of where the scheme is. I think the, the August go-live date is a serious concern for businesses. You know, they are certainly concerned about it. And I think if the government feels like their concerns are not well-founded, then there's obviously been a breakdown of communication. They need to get their message out there in a better way than they have been doing so far because it's not isolated pockets of businesses that are concerned about this. It's quite widespread concerns we're talking about. Uh, and I know the, kind of the so-called big boys, a lot of the big producers uh, are happy to sign up to these things. But at the end of the day, if you've got a small drinks company out there who ends up getting, I'm not saying they would, but if they end up getting crushed by the government, it's a really bad look if they can't cope with something like this. And those are the stories that will stick in people's minds. And you've had widespread concerns getting raised about this. I'm not really sure why the government has got themselves into such a mess with the rollout of this. Like you say, there have been delays in the past. They're now sticking to their guns in this go-live date uh, in a few months. And it doesn't seem like that's going to be moved back, if, certainly if you listen to what they're saying. But it just seems to have become a complete saga. And I think, I, I'm not sure if Lorna Slater should have been doing more to get the message out there or if, you know, just government comms in general, but something has not been going right. And I think this ties into wider concerns with the Scottish government about its approach with businesses. Yeah. I think we had another question that was raised at FMQs by Myrtle Fraser about their alcohol advertising plans, which again, they're doing this consultation and there's been a lot of kind of apocalyptic warnings about it might mean in terms of... Uh, cracking down on all sorts of advertising, even within shops and mm. small distilleries, for example, not being able to have advertised their shops, essentially. Uh, again, the government would say that this isn't true, but there's just been a bit of a mess in terms of the communication. 
Uh, and to have these policies going through that are potentially, you know, have huge ramifications, you've got to, you've got to be clear about what they do, I think, or what the intention is. Absolutely. And it's also interesting, if you listen to Nicola Sturgeon's response at First Minister's question today to Fergus Ewing, um, and also to Murdo Fraser, she seemed to indicate direction of travel, didn't she, around both the advertising ban and also the deposit return scheme. The advertising ban, just briefly, we'll touch on that in the sense that she basically said, you know, don't be ridiculous, we're not going to be banning Lafroig or Lagavulin's distillery logos on the side of their buildings, but we'll probably look at banning a billboard outside primary school. Yeah, she was very focused on advertising that children could come in contact with. Reducing the exposure to children. And then on the deposit return scheme, she was also suggesting that they might seem to kind of reduce the burden a little bit on the smaller businesses. Um, All of this work, to be confirmed... I think, before the go-live date in December. Um, but there was a real attempt, wasn't there, to kind of reassure particularly the whiskey distilleries who came forward, but also kind of small businesses widely. They, they clearly noted, I think, the government that the current communications problem with the DRS is a serious one and that people are scared. Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was funny in the, the alcohol advertising one when Murdo Fraser basically used the example of the, the Johnny Walker yes. attraction in Edinburgh on Princess Street and was essentially saying, you know, are we going to have to take, take the sign down, board up the windows? Become the Diageo experience <laughs> or the Diageo walking centre. And was essentially saying, do you agree that that's ridiculous? And Nicholas Sturgeon was saying, yes, I do agree that yeah. that's ridiculous. And was, as you say, outlining what their intention actually is with this and maybe more of a focus on adverts that children could come in contact with, for example, that billboard outside of school. But, I mean, again, we've had, it's not even a few distilleries, we've had quite widespread concerns about this. We've had major companies, I think I read in the paper the other day, even people like, uh, you know, some of these distilleries in rural areas, like the Isle of Harris distillery, was basically raising concerns about this. And these are places who employ local people that are integral to the local economy. Absolutely. And they have real concerns, and the government has to move to address them. <laughs> not, this is not a paid endorsement. One of the small producers even that came to mind for me was a little distillery, gin distillery on Jura. Now, Jura is a very difficult place to get to, and this distillery called Lussa, Lussa Gin, is even harder to get to because it's right the north of the island. And I was thinking, you know, something like that, very small run out of a converted barn, would really struggle under additional costs to this. I think the government's really keen to make it clear that people like that probably aren't going to be hit quite as hard as maybe some folk are trying to make out. Yeah. And um, that's actually all we've got time for this week. And um, please do travel to scotsman.com slash newsletter to sign up for all of our fantastic newsletters. You can enter your email address and get bang up to date on politics, on golf, on football, and on news. You'll also get direct thoughts from our editor, Neil McIntosh, as well. If you sign up to certain ones, it's also the best way to find out when the steamy has been released. Alistair, thank you very much for joining us. As always, thank you to Stuart for chatting to us as well for the podcast. Thank you to Alex for his regular update. And thank you very much for listening. Bye-bye.